guys, welcome to the University of Newcastle's CRIM podcast. Here we interview guest speakers about topical criminal justice issues. My name is Tamika and I will be your host. Thank you so much for joining us. I would like to begin this podcast by paying my respects to and acknowledge the Awabakal people who are the traditional custodians of the land that we live, work and study on. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands our listeners are listening from today. And of course, I would like to extend this respect to all elders, past, present and emerging. And on one more note, I would like to provide a quick disclaimer to you guys to warn that today's episode discusses sensitive topics that some of you may find to be disturbing or distressing. If you find that you are impacted by any of the issues we discussed today and feel you may need assistance with these feelings, we urge you to employ the free counselling services provided by the university or Headspace in town. Alternatively, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 for crisis support. guest who is joining us via Zoom today. He has spent the majority of his career being a ruthless advocate for victims of childhood sexual abuse perpetrated by the Catholic Church. He has dedicated himself to hundreds of articles and documentaries about child protection services across the globe. His book, Judas Church, Memoir of a Shy Young Fellow, reflects on his own experiences of abuse to help people in similar situations with their own journeys. To us, he's a professor we all got to know and love in CRIM 1010. Peter Gogarty, it is so good to speak to you. How are you today? I'm great, Tamika, and thanks for that introduction. I, I kind of think, oh, um, that's, I seem a little bit flasher to your audience than I actually feel. Either way, it's so good to have you on. Now, we've invited you on the podcast to talk to you about the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Abuse. So for those who may not know... Yes. What was the purpose of the Royal Commission? Um, Tamika, without sort of going back into the history of it too much, uh, I think probably in the early to mid-2000s, so we're talking 15 years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, but there there had been a a stream of um, allegations made against individual priests and Marist brothers and that sort of thing within the Catholic Church and, and every time that happened, the church itself said, look, we didn't know anything about that. We're, you know, we're as oblivious as everybody else. But at some point, people like me and others around Australia started thinking that that was just all a bit too convenient, that the church knew nothing. So we started asking that question, well, who knew what about this and when did they know it? And And I think I personally had an increasing conviction that people in high places in the Catholic Church knew exactly what was going on. So um, I think in the best tradition of um, a real community movement, I think there was a lot of of increasing pressure um, in public meetings and you mentioned some of the articles that I wrote, um, stories that I appeared in on TV, where we just kept putting pressure on the politicians to say, look, we need a royal commission into this because... um, we don't believe what the Catholic Church is saying anymore. 
And I think the rest is history. We were right. The Catholic Church has been thoroughly discredited on this on this issue. Amazing. So what were your contributions specifically to the Royal Commission, would you say? Yeah, look, there, there was a lot happening beforehand where I was calling for a Royal Commission and, and I was making some... Um, claims against particular people in the Catholic Church too, and, and that was an interesting exercise because um, the Catholic Church is not used to people questioning and questioning it about anything. So at one stage I was threatened with being sued with the, along with the ABC and Fairfax Media, and, and I think to their credit they just kept supporting me. We all stuck to our guns and, and kept pushing for the commission but then when it happened, I actually I made quite a number of submissions to the commission. Um, I gave um, evidence at the special hearing that they had on criminal justice issues and I made a lot of recommendations in that, um, in that hearing. And the thing I think I'm proudest of with all of that is that I think every, every recommend, recommendation I made to the Royal Commission, they actually followed through on and um, and all of those recommendations were reflected in their findings. So, um, yeah, I was really pleased with that because that's now given me a chance to work with, particularly with the New South Wales government, to actually make the world a safer place for kids, which is what it was all about in the first place, Tamika. Yeah, of course. So you mentioned that a few of the suggestions you made were actually being implemented. Can you go into a little bit more detail about the recommendations you made and the way it's being implemented in our communities? Yeah, for sure. Um, look, again, and I, I sometimes scratch my head and think, how did, I, how did I get to be in this position? But I'm in the really fortunate position where I, I know the New South Wales Attorney General quite well and, and I'm... Um, I've never been a political person, but honestly, I can say that he is probably the most impressive Attorney General in New South Wales in my living memory. Um, he, you know, he's a politician for sure, but I think he's also a, a genuine person who wants to make the world safer. So I've got to know him quite well and a couple of his senior policy advisors. And some of the things that came out of the Royal Commission that I was pushing for, I've been working with him on some of those things since then. So things, for example, Tamika, where people would think, um, like I think most people would think purely from a moral point of view, that if you know somebody is sexually assaulting a child, that you're, you're obliged to do the right thing and go to the police. But the reality is that the Catholic Church knew that that was happening and instead of going to the police, what they did was threaten the victims and protect the offender and then um, protest that they knew nothing. So one of the things that we've been able to do is that there's now a, a serious indictable offence being created in the New South Wales Crimes Act that deals with um, concerning child abuse within an institution. And now, if you're found guilty of that offence, um, as I said, it's a serious indictable offence, it's a minimum of five years in jail. And um, up until that happened um, last year or the year before, effectively nobody could be prosecuted for that sort of a crime. So there's there's things like that. Um, a, a lot of other um, bits and pieces that now make 
um, make it easier for victims to give evidence. And some of it's a little bit on the technical side, but um, I've got no doubt that that Australia is now a safer place for children, particularly children who find themselves at risk in an institutional setting, whether it's a, a church or a school or a swimming club or whatever. Um, I think you know it's what's motivated me for a long time, and I'm and I'm delighted that we're we've still got a way to go, but we've we've also come a long way. So we'll move on to something that was a little bit controversial that you've already actually commented on. The National Apology to Survivors was delivered by Scott Morrison in October of 2018. Do you think the apology was meaningful? Um, in, a, in a nutshell, Tamika, no. Um, I, like I've, along with a lot of other people who've survived child abuse in an institution, I think... Um, you kind of get used to hearing apologies that are, that aren't particularly heartfelt, and I've heard a lot of them. I think the reason I'm cynical about the Prime Minister's apology is that for an apology to be meaningful, it's got to be followed up with some sort of action. And I have to say that the federal government in particular has been very, um, very slow in doing anything to to support survivors. We've got a national redress scheme that, that frankly is a shambles. It's nothing like what the Royal Commission recommended, nothing like what I think ought to be in place that actually offers some support to survivors. Um, it, all it is is a bureaucratic mess um, that's let these institutions off the hook yet again. Mm-hmm. So I, I know mm-hmm. you said um, a controversial topic. Well, I'm, I'm not allergic to controversial topics. Um, you'll be surprised to know, I'm sure. But um, I think that's one of the things that, that's unfinished work. And I think, as I said, Tamika, for, for an apology to be, to be genuine and heartfelt, you've got to do something about it. You've got to change the circumstances. And, and yet, as we speak, a lot of the institutions that were, were absolutely shamed in the Royal Commission um, are... You know, unfortunately, a lot of them have suffered some some short-term embarrassment, but really it's, they're back on with life as usual. They're still getting millions of dollars in in, um, in government subsidies for, for capital works. They're, they're still enjoying tax exemptions. They're still enjoying charitable status. So, look, I think um, our federal politicians have, have um, they've got a long way to go and, and I also have a view that if you're not part of the solution, then you then you're part of the problem. And I, I didn't I didn't come up with that quote, but I think it's true. You know, we we all have an obligation. I think to when you know something's wrong, we have an obligation to try and do something to make it better. And I'm I'm afraid that our prime minister is not not really um, doing what I would expect of him. Amazing. That must be incredibly frustrating. So you mentioned the National Redress Scheme that was created in response to the Royal Commission a little bit earlier there. For those who may not know what it is, would you mind explaining what it is and what it does? Yeah, Tamika, the the Redress Scheme was a recommendation of the Royal Commission and what they suggested was that everyone who had been sexually abused in an institution 
should have somewhere independent that they could go to. So instead of having to go back, say, in my circumstances, to the Catholic Church, so go back to the organisation that that let me be abused by a pedophile priest, there would be an independent body set up where I could go where other the you know, some of the other forty to 50,000 survivors of institutional child abuse could go where they could they could tell their story receive some support and then receive some sort of financial compensation for for their loss and and let me tell you as we speak to make the the compensation even at the highest level the compensation for someone like me for example would be worth less than a cup of coffee a day over the, the course of my life for for um, the hurt that I went through and the the ongoing struggle that I have, and I consider myself to be one of the lucky people. So you know, I've got I've got a good life, but some survivors struggle to exist day in and day out. And the best our government can offer by way of a of a um, a compensation scheme is fifty or sixty thousand dollars. A hugely bureaucratic process where people need to um, tell their story all over again, and then someone making an arbitrary decision about what that level of hurt is worth in a dollar sense. So it just, um, yeah, as I said, it's it it is all it's doing is re-traumatizing people, and um, and a lot of people just aren't going to be bothered with it. So. Um, I know there's me included, a lot of people pushing for, for reform of that redress scheme and the tragedy is it's only two years old and the Royal Commission had a way for it to happen. So why aren't we doing it the right way? Currently there's a review being conducted of the National Redress Scheme. Will you pr be providing recommendations yourself? Yeah, I already have, Tamika. Um, uh, there's a Senate committee that's looking at that issue. I've already um, made submissions to that Senate committee. I've given evidence to that Senate committee. Um, I know a lot of other good people have as well. My concern is that um, that we've we there was already an attempt to to do exactly this process before the last election, and and really for political reasons it went nowhere. Um, we've got the same federal government in place. I'm really concerned that this review will go nowhere as well. And of course, um, as somebody that's not prepared to accept second best, um, you know, that means I've still got work to do on it. And so have a lot of other people. So I genuinely hope that the government gets its act together on this. But to be honest, at the moment, I'm not holding my breath. Now, we'll move on to a case that no one could have missed because it was splattered all across the media. Cardinal Pell was released from prison after the High Court overturned his conviction earlier in the year. What are the implications of this outcome, Peter? Um, there's a couple, I think, Tamika, and, and um, one of them is a sort of a social justice issue thing in the sense that I think um, a, lot of, a lot of survivors of child abuse will be very reluctant now to come forward because the the witness in that particular case, um, I'm not sure how he how he survived um, the grilling that he got in court from Cardinal Pell's counsel. Um, 
and I think there's the the it, it highlights the problem with these kinds of historical cases. We know now that um, typically. For, for people who even do ever come forward, typically the time from the abuse ends until the time somebody comes forward can be 20 to 30 years. And with this kind of a crime, there's usually no witnesses. Um, this is a very, very private, secret sort of offence. So it then comes down to the the evidence of the, of the witness complainant victim versus um, the the alleged offender saying, no, no, I didn't do it. So I think this case will put a lot of people off. But the broader legal implication, I think, is that we've had the High Court say, and look, I, I've said publicly that um, we need to defend the High Court because in the in the final analysis, it's, it's the institution that protects our freedoms the most. But the real big concern I've got about the High Court's decision is that they have effectively said that a jury who listened to all of that evidence, who saw the witness face-to-face, who could assess his credibility, and our whole system is based on that that premise of, um, yes, you're, you're innocent until proven guilty, but your trial is effectively determined by the community, by a group of your peers. Well, Cardinal Pell's peers, without hesitation, said that he was guilty of that offence. So I think from a from a legal a legal perspective, a purely legal perspective, I think it it casts a, a shadow over our whole jury trial system. And as I said, from a from a survivor's perspective, I think it will have a chilling effect on people coming forward with other allegations, particularly where the alleged offender is a high-profile person. I think um, most people would say, I can't put myself through that. You mentioned having to respect the High Court because it is the institution that protects our rights the most. How can we respect it when this is the outcome that has eventuated? Yeah, look, it's it's difficult, Tamika, and, and um, a few weeks after the, the Cardinal Pell case, I, I wrote an article and and defended the High Court and said, look, I, I don't like this decision and, and I expressed the same views that I've just mentioned to you. But I said, look, it may not be perfect, but but it's the best we've got. So we can't we can't say, well, you know, we when we like the decisions you come up with, we'll accept that. But when we don't like those decisions, um, we'll we'll make a big fuss about it. But what really disappointed me, and maybe it's a little bit off off track, but only a few weeks after I defended the High Court, we had the the revelations by the current Chief Justice of the High Court, who happens to be a woman, um, that um, Justice Dyson Hayden had... Um, sexually harassed six of his female associates over a prolonged period of time. And then we had the revelation that two other justices of the High Court, also men, had known what he was doing and had said nothing and protected the institution rather than protect the victims. So it's like we're, you know, like I feel like um, sometimes it's like, I feel like we've slipped into a twilight zone where an institution like the High Court 
which in, in a sense, you know, it's got enormous respect and it ought to uphold the highest standards of, um, of the law and of morality. It's a bit like the Catholic Church. I mean, the, these are institutions that are supposed to be pillars of our society and honestly, I'm, I'm shattered by it and I think I've said this a lot too and people kind of, they smile and, you know, don't know whether I'm serious or not, but they're, they're people just like me. They're crusty old white blokes that are privileged, educated, and I hope the difference between me and them is that I don't think that this is all okay. Like, but, but, I'm, but I'm sad that my, my gender and my generation have, have got a great deal to answer for. You mentioned that the High Court and even the Catholic Church, there's a whole lot of concealment going on. So what do we do about all those individuals that enabled and concealed this kind of abuse? Well, Tamika, I think, and this is something you, you may have heard me say in class, and I, and I say it a lot to, to all of my students, I think, is that each one of us needs to be realistic about what we can actually do in the world, how we can make the world a better place. But, but I'm, um, despite my cynicism about some of these things, I'm also an optimist and I think if enough of us do enough good things in our lives, in our personal lives, in our professional lives, that we can, we can make a difference about these things. And so the, the project that I've kind of moved on to now, as well as my teaching, is that um, I'm working on some research that's, that's trying to work out how an institution like the Catholic Church has been allowed to get away with what is clearly criminal behaviour in so many different respects, by the way, not, not just in the child abuse issue, but the sexual abuse of nuns, financial improprieties in the Vatican Bank. I mean, we're talking about tax evasion, money laundering, um, go back to the Second World War and the Catholic Church knew what Hitler was, was trying to do with the European Jew, Jewish population. It, it just seems to me that's, that we need to work out what it is about power and influence that corrupts. And um, we have to work that out so that we can try and change it. And look, I, I'm realistic. I'm not, uh, I'm no spring chicken and I can only do so much, but if I keep working on that and I can keep inspiring my students to, to do their little bit, then I, I really am optimistic, Tamika, that we can make the world a better place, a more just place. Yeah, absolutely. I hope that doesn't sound cheesy, but that <laughs> gets me out of bed every day. That's okay. At heart, we know that you're truly a cheesy person. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah thank you. <laughs> Online, we've also read that a project that you would be interested in executing is bringing a suit in the International Criminal Court. Would you mind commenting on that? Yeah, well, look, I'm, I'm working on that, Tamika, as we speak. So, the, again, cutting a long story short, about 20-odd years ago, maybe it's a little bit longer than that now, the a lot of countries got together and decided that they were going to establish an international criminal court and that they would establish a statute, which is basically legislation, so a piece of international legislation about what that court would do. 
And and one of the things, so a lot of this was they were initially targeting, you know, a lot of um, dictators, you know, in, in African countries that were doing horrendous things to their populations. But then they started thinking about war crimes and, and all sorts of other issues. So when... When the statute was ratified, so it's called the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, it includes a crime um, where either a state or an organisation commits crimes against humanity. So it's, it's now written in black and white. And, and that statute, and that article in the statute, talks about the sexual abuse of children and where there's concealment of that and it's done in the, I think the words are the furtherance of a state or organisational objective, then that's, that's an international crime. So it's a crime against humanity. So what I've been working on for the last couple of years, and, and look, I've had some setbacks, but I'm not giving up on it, is a submission to the International Criminal Court, and I've, I've already sent them a couple of drafts, um, trying to get them to charge the Pope and something like 200 cardinals of the Catholic Church with crimes against humanity. And I think some people think, oh, that's a bit of a joke. You're never going to get them in court. But I'm serious about it. They, they have gotten away with committing crimes against humanity. There are hundreds of thousands of children all over the world in virtually every country where the Catholic Church has a presence who have been sexually abused by priests and brothers and um, and the Catholic Church knew about it. They protected the offenders. They moved them on. They threatened victims. They paid sly compensation to try and get the victims to go away. They denied all, and yet the people who let that happen are still living lives of luxury, and I'm afraid that um, that's not good enough. And while ever I've got breath, I will keep pursuing that through the International Criminal Court um, and hope that one day we get them in court. The, the problem that I've struck, Tamika, is that because most law, as you'd understand, um, can't be retrospective, so we, won't, we don't create laws that people can't know that they need to comply with, the International Criminal Court can't really look at crimes that... that predate its creation in about 2002, I think it was. So a lot of the stuff that the Catholic Church has been caught out on has been historic. So what I'm trying to do at the moment is come up with more contemporary examples of the same thing so that the court can look at it. So, yeah, look, in a nutshell, that's where that project's at. And um, I've written probably so far my submission's about 25,000 words and, and counting. So... Um, yeah, so keep your fingers crossed. So for all the prospective criminologists out there, Peter, what can we do to assist with these fights for justice? How can we help? Um, to make it, I think the, the trick is, like, if people want to get involved in what I'm doing, I think that's fine, and, look, I welcome that. But as I said a minute ago, what, what I would really like all of my students to do is just whatever they can do in their lives and whether that's in their personal lives or their professional lives, do that to the best of your ability and don't turn a blind eye when you see things that aren't right. I think if everybody calls out 
wrongdoing and everybody tries to make the world a better place, even if it's only a small thing each day, then we will turn this around. And again, I know that sounds a bit cheesy, but I honestly believe that part of the problem we've got is that, I shouldn't say everybody, a lot of people, and I've struck this a lot over my career and, and particularly in this struggle, a lot of people say, look, it's somebody should do something about that, but it's not my problem or they use the, you know, the royal they should do something. But my point is, who is they? Like, they is me. So if I do what I'm capable of doing each day and every one of my students goes on to have a career and a life where they do what they can do each day, then inevitably the good guys will win. That's incredibly inspiring of you, Peter. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer our questions today. Your advocacy is a true inspiration to all the students of the university and we love to learn from you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tamika. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today and um, and good luck to, to you and, and all, of, um, all of the students, you know, all of my students. I am genuinely invested in you guys having a great future. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. So guys, if you find that this issue sparked an internal advocate within yourself, send us a message on Facebook and we'll point you in the right direction. Anyway, guys, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening to the Crim Podcast and make sure you stay tuned for our next episode to be released after the break on Friday and week nine. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the University of Newcastle's CRIM podcast. And in this week's episode, Peter Gogarty is interviewed by Tomika Hillebrand via Zoom. The podcast was produced by Milena Lorimer and was recorded at Real to Real Studios with thanks to Jason Wynn in Newcastle. It was edited by Colin Wright. The music was composed and recorded by Morrigan Rain. You can hear more of Morrigan Rain's music on bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening and watch out for the next episode of the Crim Podcast.